0: Sorry to interrupt. It's Misha here, the Conversations Managing Editor. As you probably know, The Conversation relies on you, our readers, to help fund our work. Over the next two weeks, we desperately need your help to keep doing our work and to keep this podcast on air. It doesn't take much. For $30 a month, you can help us provide clean, evidence-based information. If you value what we do, please give now by visiting donate.theconversation.edu.au or by clicking on the banner ad on our homepage. And now, back to the podcast.
1: From The Conversation, this is Essays On Air, where we bring you the best and most beautiful audio essays by Australian researchers. I'm Sananda Cray. Today, we're hearing from Jhonti St Clair, lecturer in journalism in the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Southern Cross University. For the Sound Trails app, she produced an audio walk for the far north coast New South Wales village of Nimbin, all about the legacy of the Aquarius Festival that took place there in the early 1970s. She's adapted it here for Essays On Air.
0: The Northern Star, Saturday the 13th of January 1973. A public meeting in Nimbin tonight will discuss a proposal that
2: Nimbin host a 10-day arts festival in May... Organisers of the biennial Aquarius Arts Festival
3: have already... The Alternates came in 1973.
4: We were all surprised that we were getting invaded. (laughs) That's what it felt like.
5: We came up in our manifesto with the lines like, there is no program, you are the program.
4: When they started to arrive here, I think the whole lot of us got the shock of our lives and we saw how many people.
2: The people who did come were just so full of heart, and so passionate, and so wanted to serve.
5: We basically said, look, this is not about you going and consuming culture.
4: And I often wonder what would have happened to Nimbin had they not come here. I think Nimbin would have died.
2: In the northeast corner of Australia's most populous state of New South Wales, is a small, former, dairying and banana farming community. Today, however, that village is unrecognisable from its farming incarnation. Nimbin is now widely acknowledged as Australia's countercultural capital, a sister city to both Woodstock in New York State and Freetown Christiana in Denmark, and a popular and colourful tourist stop. The facades of its main street are garlanded with rainbow flags and painted with colourful murals. Shops sell chai, incense, tarot cards and natural remedies. Rainbow painted buses trek 60 kilometres inland daily from Byron Bay, filled with young, backpacking tourists. Pot culture is central to social and political life in Nimbin. Marijuana, not yet legal in Australia, is available for purchase surreptitiously from so-called lane boys. Two of Nimbin's main attractions are its hemp embassy and the annual Mardi Gras festival in early May, which argues for the legislation of marijuana for personal and medicinal use. The village's transformation from a rural farming community can be traced to 1973, when Nimbin became the unlikely host of the Aquarius festival, a counterculture arts and music gathering presented by the radical Australian Union of Students. But these social and political origins of the commodified hippie culture on display today in Nimbin have become less apparent to visitors and more recent migrants to the region. Visitors, especially those arriving on bus tours, tend to shop, buy coffee and leave again. To counter this, the Nimbin Tourism Office commissioned me in 2016 to produce an app-based audio walk, which helps answer the question, why is Nimbin the way it is, and to promote a deeper engagement for tourists with the town. The audio walk was published onto the GPS-enabled mobile phone app, Soundtrails. Soundtrails is owned by The Story Project, an Australian organisation focusing on oral history-based audio walks, and they've published more than a dozen such walks in regional Australia. This audio walk is the first permanent exhibition about a nationally significant event in Nimbin that's available around the clock seven days a week. Anyone with a smartphone can access it by downloading the app and the Nimbin audio walk and following the route through the village's streets and parklands. Headphones provide the best experience. Such smart tourism tools, as tourism researcher Jenny German Moles writes, connect the embodied tourist to the place through an immersive sensibility, and in ways which are completely counter to the modern-day Insta-holiday, where travellers might queue for hours to take a photograph of themselves at an iconic site, simply to post the image to Instagram, and move on. Instead, audio walks fit the slow mobilities and slow travel movements that have emerged over the past two decades. Travellers take time to develop a deep connection with people and places, and often this happens through the sharing of stories. The stories I share with you today about Nimbin are excerpts from the Nimbin Sound Trail and are drawn from consultations and interviews with more than 60 Nimbin residents, Aquarius Festival participants, and indigenous elders. Here I've tried to reconnect the past and the present to make clear the origins of how Nimbin became the countercultural capital that it is, and a caveat. As many of the events in this documentary walk happened more than 40 years ago, I've recognised that memories had merged with other retellings that evolved over the years, and the definitive truth is perhaps unavailable. Any version of Nimbin's counterculture will be an incomplete history. With the Nimbin sound trail, the complexity and diffuse nature of the Nimbin Aquarius narrative was such that polyvocality, that is, the use of multi-voices and perspectives, was used to represent the many, often contested, partial narratives of what happened, and to recognise the distributed, community-based decision-making processes that were central to the Aquarian vision.
6: While the government continues its present policy of national service training... While the
2: festival didn't officially begin until May 12, 1973, the story begins before then.
7: demonstrators marched in Martin Place. We asked them why they were marching. Two, three, four, three,
2: four, one, four, five, Amid the anti-Vietnam War movement, people were seeking clear alternatives to the consumer culture that offered young people a path to a nine-to-five job and a house in the suburbs.
7: The decision we will make for our country on the 2nd of December is a choice between the past and the future, between the habits and fears of the past and the demands and opportunities of the
2: future. Progressive Australians were looking for new ways of living. In December 1972, the Whitlam Labour government was elected and a suite of progressive social and political changes quickly followed.
7: There are moments in history when the whole fate and future of nations can be decided by a single decision. For Australia, this is such a time.
2: On its first day in office, The government brought Australian troops home from the Vietnam War, ended the conscription lottery, and released jailed draft resistors from prison. The mood shifted to one of elation and possibility. Funding for the performing arts was increased significantly. The environment, land rights, equal pay for women, human rights, were all being given attention by the new Labour government. The 1973 Aquarius Festival in Nimbin was to be the fourth biennial arts and cultural festival organised by the National University Student Union. And it was one that sought to break the mould that had developed with the previous three, which had been held in urban centres at university campuses. Graham Dunstan was appointed by the Australian Union of Students as the festival director, while Johnny Allen was the Aquarius Festival's cultural director. Here's Graham, and then you'll hear from Johnny.
5: What was the alternative festival? How did we celebrate? When I met Johnny Allen, I discovered someone who was exploring exactly that. And that led to this conversation that led to Nimbin, that led to this festival without a program. We basically said, look, this is not about you going and consuming culture. You know, the first statement of the manifesto we wrote on our first day together on the job was, uh, we will not be sold our culture. It's not about you going and listening to rock bands or seeing pieces of people. It's about you doing what you do best, making your life an art.
2: Their vision was for a rural outdoor festival, one that might provide a green field for envisaging a new way of organising daily life. The New South Wales North Coast was already becoming a meeting point for people seeking an alternative life. Communities were developing around Mullumbimby, but for the Aquarius Festival, Graham and Johnny were looking for fresh ground. Then, as some tell it, Singapore Joseph suggested they look at Nimbin.
5: Cole James, who we'd been working with, was very much involved in rural regeneration, looking at how he could bring life back to towns. As we drove into Nimbin and sort of found that the town was in fact struggling to keep a population, it actually had a smaller population than at the turn of the century. The realisation dawned that we could do more than just hire a showground. we could in fact recycle the town. That became the rationale of the festival. In
3: 1973 the banana growing was in a
5: decline and
3: the dairy farming had dropped back from 400 suppliers now to about 156.
4: We used to have a, a lot of butter that used to be made here in Nimbin. It seemed as though that the dairy farming was going to go out and I, I thought maybe... They thought that would build it up, but I don't know whether it did or not. But we had the meeting in the hall that night to discuss the fact of having a festival here.
3: They didn't promise, but they said at the the hall that they would be uh, having this festival and then going. The hall was full,
4: absolutely full.
2: Mr Dunstan said Nimbin will become etched on the national consciousness. There will be no program of performances... There would be no spoon-feeding of passive consumers. The festival would be what the participants we made it.
5: We threw it open to a town meeting and basically said to the town, this is what we want to do. If you want this, we'll stay and do it, and, and if not, we'll go away and find somewhere else.
4: I think that might have been the idea, that we'd, we, whether we agreed to have it or not. So We obviously agreed
2: to have it. <laughs> It's estimated between five and 10,000 people came to this festival without a program in May 1973.
5: Although it was a designated sort of 10 days in May, the festival just sort of eased in from the time that we had the agreement of the town to host the festival
0: and to proceed. Hundreds of people were there before the festival actually started just to get the infrastructure happening. Digging the toilets and running the co-op.
5: We came up in our, in our manifesto with lines like, you know, there is no program, you are the program. But we supported that by explaining what we meant. And what we meant was that we wanted people to get together in, in tribal groups of uh, 15 or 20 and give some thought as to how they were going to live at the festival, what sort of structures they were going to build, what their strengths were, what they could offer, whether it be great cooking skills or music skills or whatever.
2: The people who did come were just so full of heart and so passionate and so wanted to serve, and so wanted to dedicate their lives to to doing the right thing for humanity. And so, months before the festival began, Nimbin began its transformation from sleepy village to thriving commune.
6: Most of the activity took place in the paddock down behind the town here, where Rainbow Power is now, where it wasn't then, where the swimming pool is now, where the caravan park is now, where everything down that way is now, wasn't then. It was just paddock, where the creek runs through the middle of it.
4: It was really magical because it was early days and people had all these totally incredible dwellings with woven grass and just sort of like totally magical little setup.
5: People were building out of bamboo, thatching
6: with with grass that they cut locally. Some of the students were engineering students, they built stuff. Some of the guys built some tension bamboo bridges across the creek. The Dome, Geodesic Domes, Buckminster Fuller, that was
7: very contemporary. The yoga group we slept in our geodesic dome open to the weather. So if it rained or you know it was cold, well we just it didn't affect us, so I think it was very, very mellow.
2: The locals may have been shocked by the visitor's nudity and hippie lifestyle but they certainly appreciated the boost to the local economy as Nimbin had been in economic decline. Daisy Stewart was a young mother who ran the local cafe. In 1973,
4: I owned a a takeaway food shop in Cullen Street, Nimbin. We were all surprised that we were getting invaded. (laughs) That's what it felt like, but it was good. I enjoyed every minute of it, met some beautiful people And I often wonder what would have happened to Nimbin had they not come here. I think Nimbin would have died. We used to have three grocery shops in Nimbin. There was one only when they came, and it wasn't doing great. When they started to arrive here, I think the whole lot of us got the shock of our lives (laughs) when we saw how many people. But as it turned out, I had the shop full from 7 o'clock until sometimes 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we had fruit and veg and a few grocery lines that people might use, like weekend stuff when there was nothing, nowhere else to go. And we served uh, fish and chips and hamburgers, coffee and tea. Busy as all hell. <laughs> we had to close a shop probably four times a day to clean the floors and that because it used to get so messy. Funny time. So I didn't get to see anything that happened outside. But I met some beautiful people.
5: Really there was something for everyone. There was never a program that said at 10 o'clock this will happen. What else do I remember? Lots of people without
0: clothes on. There was lots of healing tents. Ah, the street life. You could learn different sorts of dancing.
5: Fleet Petit put a wire between buildings across the main street there. Between
4: the pub and the cafe. He's a French tightrope artist.
5: He walked across this wire. It was awe-inspiring.
4: And I thought I'd discovered him because one very misty night we were doing a show at the Town Hall and I came out for a breath of air and there in the mist was this magical little being on a monocycle with a flat-top hat riding along on his cycle. I said, we're doing a show in the town hall. Would you like to come and be part of our show? I was actually discovering him. And, of course, he was brought specially for the festival. Now, this will amaze you. I never saw a naked person in the street. Never saw one. I mean, I don't know. They could have been out there because, as I said, I couldn't see too much. I never ever saw a naked person in the street. Maybe they were down at the showground or wherever they were. I saw a lot of naked children. <laughs> I did get a name for that. I, they used to bring their naked children in, sit them on the counter and I'd immediately say, please take them off. Little kids are different to adults, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, Bob Hope came one Sunday morning looking for his daughter. I can't tell you whether he found her or not, but he was up and down the street, dressed in a white safari suit and what have you. (laughs) Through the the festival, we had a jar on the um, counter which any change that was left there, we put it in there. And I had 27 people working for me at, at different stages over that time. And when the festival was over, we took them out for dinner the whole 27 of them, so that's how much money people left behind.
7: (laughs) The main event for me, I mean, there was things like Paul Joseph's musos, especially the song he sang, which became, I think, the theme song of the festival.
8: I I practised yoga for quite a long time and I was very uh, into chanting and uh, I had a particular chant which I'd pinched from the incredible string band and the words have made the long time sunshine upon you all love surround you and the pure light within you guide your way on but I changed the last word to home because of I suppose my own sense at the time of wanting to come home and and I'd played that quite a lot and and people started joining in with me and it was amazing sense that um, that we suddenly all came into an agreement
7: maybe i can sing it may the long time sun shine upon you all love surround you
6: and the pure light within
7: you guide your way home that was it we got into the conga line and we sort of ambled around the, the festival site singing this it was about line with Paul Joseph leading with his musos, and we all sort of followed through
8: May the long time sunshine upon you while love surround you your light within
5: and he you had kind unstoppable energy he seemed to be able to do this hour after hour all day I was amazed I, he just kept appearing with this band of people singing
7: light within you kind so I think that felt, that was, for me, the the heart of the festival, that, that song with Paul Joseph.
6: It became a signature of Nimbin to the extent that before it burnt down, the Nimbin Museum had its awning supported by a piece of tree. And one of our local artists had carved the words around it in a big spiral. And it had an indigenous man hanging onto the tree at the top, holding the roof up.
2: When you your way home During the festival, people began thinking about staying in the area, about the possibility of creating a new society, one based on the principles of living in harmony with nature and being self-sustainable, working cooperatively outside capitalist society's 9-to-5 economy. Vernon Trewick, the festival's main muralist, recalls the meeting where it all came together
3: the last day of the festival. We had a, had a meeting in the hall here. It was, now what, you know, at the end of the festival, what now, you know? A friend of mine, who was here then, uh, Lindsay Burke, got up and he said, there's a thousand acres just at Thunderbolt Falls for a for hundred thousand. He said, if everybody here put in a couple of hundred dollars, we could buy that. And I got up and I said, yes, let's do it.
2: The locals were a bit shocked that everybody was staying on after the festival.
4: They weren't expecting that. They felt that the town was being taken over.
3: Whether they had this planned or whether it was just the beauty of the place and, and the friendliness that made them want to stay. So they formed a, a cooperative. The Tunnable Falls Cooperative was the first one they formed.
5: We describe ourselves as new settlers rather than straights and hippies.
3: They paid Sam Mackay, who owned the Western Sharps land, that's where the sawmill was. The sawmill had seven or eight what they call mill houses around them, where the people, the families even used to live in them. That was an ideal starting place for them because they had some roofs and they had the workshop in the sawmill, and then it grew from there.
8: And we called it multiple occupancy.
5: We had the thing called the Home Builders Association, and we're advocating home building as part of the lifestyle. You birthed your own babies, you built your own house, you grew your own food. These these were fundaments of the um, post-aquarian settlement.
8: We came to a price of $200 a share, and we arrived at that by um, land was $100 an acre, wages were $100 a week. You could have a cow to an acre, so we thought two acres per person and that was $200, and that was two weeks' work. So that was our sales pitch, really, two weeks' work in your own land for the rest of your life.
2: Tundable Falls became one of the first multiple occupancy communities to be established, and it continues today. Others started up, including Nimbinji, which Paulina Hearn joined just as the big rains of 1974 arrived.
0: We lived in a tent for about 18 months. What was a shock was the weather. It rained all of 74, most of 75 and well into 76. That was a challenge, living in a tent with the rain. And we bought farm animals and they wanted to live in the tent with us, of course. They had no shelter, so that was another challenge. The main house, we had a a wood stove in it and people spent a lot of time in the main house. We had, always had communal meals in the evening. I think soybeans was big on the menu in those days. <laughs> I've never been a soybean fan. And then you'd wander back down to your, your tent or your humpy or whatever you had in the evening after the meal. Getting across the creek crossing sometimes was a bit hairy if the creek had come up. And, and the roads were just impassable. They were just tracks that you, you couldn't use in the wet. They just didn't have any gravel on them. Well, people started thinking, oh, I've got to put up a little house, and just wandered around and found a spot that they felt they'd like. We started scrounging, basically. You'd get the Saturday morning paper and there'd be an ad for windows and doors for sale. You'd drive out to wherever they were, tell people what you're going to do, and often they'd just give them to you. Spark something in people. Whether they knew we were hippies or not, it really didn't seem to matter. They were quite happy to give us, or give us at a very low price, windows and doors and bits of roofing iron and... Whatever. We're following a dream and and they connected with that. The house I built with my partner at the time was a little timber house, 12 foot wide by 24 long. And it was a palace compared to the tent. We got out of the tent just before it literally ripped apart in a storm. We were famous for our fancy dress parties at Nimbinji. We also had the basis of the Blue Skies Orchestra lived on in Binji, and they used to do dances at Blue Knob Hall mainly. And if there was a dance on at Blue Knob, everyone would go out in the tractor and trailer to the main gate in your gumboots and at the main gate swap into something decent and drive in to the dance at Blue Knob. They were good times. It was a great time for the kids. They were wild, they were free just wander around like a pack really and different people had different setups at their house for the kids. I I was the crafty person and I had one afternoon after school where they'd all come to my place and do craft. Al Brown down the back, he was a bachelor, he had the ice blocks in the fridge. They loved going to Al Brown's. And other times they'd just roam like a pack and we had our calls to get them home at night. Mine was whoop, whoop, really loudly and that meant come home now. Whoop, whoop. In retrospect I don't think we knew what we were doing or why we were doing it. We knew we wanted a community, you know the Vietnam War was coming to an end and it was time to look at alternatives and that's what we were doing. In one way it's reinventing the wheel of course, you know, but we didn't know that at the time. We thought we were brand new innovators. <laughs>
2: The Nimbin Sound Trail continues on from here to follow the story of why Nimbin is the way it is through the decades right through to the present. But what we hear is just one thread in the tapestry that is Nimbin's remarkable story. As time passes, so do key people from the original festival and early new settler movement, but parts of their stories are captured here. Even today, as tensions between the community and property developers grow, Nimbin has shown itself to be remarkably resilient. It's in the character of the people, says Michael Boulderstone of Nimbin's Hemp Embassy.
3: I love Nimbin and I love hippie values and I know they stand for a real truth of the possibility of humans being able to live in harmony with the earth and each other. And I can see it's possible. We're just going to wait and work, to, and work hard towards it. And Nimbin tries hard and and I think look, everyone tries hard, but Nimbin has had a quite a splash of enlightenment and it comes through in the community. There's a lot of good people here. People brave enough to sort of do what they love rather than sort of chase the money. You know, it's hard to swim against that tide. There's a lot of pressure. So I've got, you know, lots of admiration for the hippies who tried to walk another path.
2: The nine months it took me to gather these stories and make some sense of how they fitted together were rewarding. And while there are some who might dispute the accounts of what happened in these stories, others agree that it's a fair record of Nimbin's contemporary history. The full Nimbin Soundtrail can be heard by downloading the Soundtrail app. You'll find it in the Northern Rivers section of the index. And if you are ever in the area, I invite you to take a day out, visit and listen to the stories in town.
1: May the long time sun shine upon you all love, Surround you
4: and the pure light Within you guide your way home
1: That was Jonti Sinclair, lecturer in journalism in the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Southern Cross University. You can find out more about her project at www.soundtrails.com explore. That's Soundtrails. S-O-U-N-D-T-R-A-I-L-S. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Jonti Sinclair. Our theme music is by David Zetze from Free Music Archive, and you can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com.